Hey everybody, welcome back to Mr. Misfits. We're here, actually, well, I'm here. Brandon had to go off to a wedding and celebrate someone else's love. But our bromance is back because the one and only Joe Ash Thomas is here with me once again. So welcome back, Joe Ash. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. This is going to be fun. This, yeah, well... We were talking before we started recording about how much fun potentially this could be, and we're hoping to not have that kind of fun today. We're hoping to actually just be able to get through and, and hit this topic well. So yeah. um, for those Save that don't know who Joe Ash is, Joe Ash um, was with us back at the beginning of season two, and we talked biblical justice. He also is one of the exclusive Patreon episodes where he talked about his career in U.S. politics. And how that actually led him to IJM, which is where he is at now in Canada. Um, that's the International Justice Mission, um, IGM.org if you're stateside, IJM.ca if you're up north with, with Joe Ash. So that is not what we're talking about today directly. There's a little bit of, of overlap. But what we are talking about today is potentially a little bit, well, not potentially, it's a lot a bit controversial. And so we want to clarify that Joe Ash, while he is a he is a voice and a worker within IJM and supports their mission and vision and, and is working to see that mission and vision carried out, especially in Canada, today he is talking as Joe Ash Thomas, who is speaking on his own and not as an employee of IJM. Yep. Did I say that correctly? That is perfect. Perfect. So we do want to, but it is important to understand what it is that IJM does to understand why you are qualified to talk about this. So explain again for everybody what IJM actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So IJM is the world's largest anti-trafficking organization. Um, we have offices all over the world, uh, more than 25 countries. Uh, and yeah, we rescue um, people from uh, human trafficking, modern day slavery, all forms of it, forced labor, slavery, sex trafficking, online sexual exploitation of children. Uh, and we also help uh, rescue women and children from violence um, across the world. Uh, but we don't just rescue them, we help restore them. Uh, and we uh, then fight their cases in court and uh, get convictions for the perpetrators. Uh, make sure that they get the consequences of their actions. And uh, yeah, and eventually long-term, we look to strengthen the justice system so that millions of people are protected from ever being subject to violence or trafficking in the first place. So yeah, we uh, have a goal, audacious goal by 2030 to protect half a billion people from ever being enslaved or uh, targeted by violence. And uh, I get to lead our church partnerships work and our government advocacy work here in Canada. So that's what I do when I'm on the clock. <laughs> when you're on the clock, which is yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And part of the reason why it's important for people to understand that is because the topic that we are talking about today is slaveholder theology. 
And if you follow Joe Ash on Twitter, which you should, which it's at Joe Ash P. Thomas, if you follow him on Twitter about when was it? Was this in the summertime last year or was this fall? Yeah, I think it was fall. Yeah, there was a, a major, major blow up, not just on Twitter, but this also happened in a few other media spaces. Yeah. There was a major increase in the amount of people trying to platform Jonathan Edwards specifically to a a level that we have not seen. Well, I personally have not seen. Maybe mm-hmm. it has happened a while, but it has been a long time since it's been at this level. And our good friend Joe Ash, because you know how timid he is in these situations, <laughs> highlighted the reality of what it was that Edwards preached and believed. And it got a lot of people angry. And when we say angry, we actually do mean angry, angry. Mm -hmm. But it's an important thing to talk about because since then, we have had this conversation show up in multiple areas, both online and in person, in many different settings about whether or not somebody that was a slaveholder should be held up within the church. And is there actual theological arguments that should be encouraged that come from them as well? Now, we're going to start off with highlighting a few of the different pieces with all of this. But Joe Ash, there's one more piece of the story that people need to understand about you as to why you specifically took this on beyond just IJM's work. You're also currently studying all of these people, correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, working on a dual master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. And a big focus of that is systematic theology, looking at where we've inherited our theology from and why we don't talk about justice as much in the North American church. So because of that, you talk about these sort of things a lot in an academic setting. Yeah. You've talked about this a lot from a social setting within the work that IGM does. And you and I specifically, and you and a lot of other people have had this talk theologically in a lot of different settings as well. And so today specifically, we are going to tackle mostly the theology side because again, three tiers we're talking, if we have the theology right and it's Christocentric, then everything else will follow suit. And so that's why we are focusing in there as well. There's other social arguments. There are other political arguments. There's all these other arguments out there that, you know, you may want, people may want to argue about why we did this completely wrong. But we are sticking to the idea that if our theology is Christocentric and at the foundation, then the, the thought processes and the methods that it produces will be Christocentric as well. So to start with, what are some of the common arguments that we see that we would label as slaveholder theology? What are some of the main ones that you come across? And then if you if there's any that you don't hit, I will. Yeah, you know, that'd be great. That'd be good to tag team this together. But, um, you know, I think something that stands out to me about Western evangelical theology, and I say this as a Western evangelical myself, uh, and, and sure, I grew up in the majority world church and I've had that exposure, work with the global church as well and the Canadian church. But 
something I have seen is an overemphasis on uh, the soul and an mm-hmm. overemphasis on the spiritual side of things and an underemphasis on the body, the physical side of things, right? And it's always kind of intrigued me as to why we don't talk about justice as much in the North American church. Uh, I have noticed that the Canadian church talks more about justice than the U.S. church does. Um, and I think as I've traced back our theological lineage here, the you know the, the mainstream evangelical uh, Western theology, like who have we really inherited from? Uh, it, it can be traced back to the slaveholders, right? It can be traced back to folks like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, others like them in the First Great Awakening, uh, who, you know, were slaveholders, and as far as we know, were unrepentant of that until right. the day they died. And and sure, they may have opposed, they may have opposed uh, parts of the slave trade, uh, but you know, if you oppose the slave trade, why would you still own slaves, right? So, it like uh, it's just a lot that doesn't add up. Uh, anyway, so when when I say slaveholder theology. Um, you know, I listen to voices in the black church who talk about how these slaveholders condition their slaves to believe that the salvation of their souls was more important than their physical liberation to Jesus. And so slavery is okay. And, you know, you even find verses in the Bible to defend anything, right? So you find verses in the Bible to defend slavery and you say, it's okay. God actually desires for you to be a slave. You are cursed under Ham, <laughs> under the curse of Ham, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. Um, but what's more important to God, what's more important to Jesus, is your soul. So it's okay for your body to be trampled. It's okay for your body to be thrown behind the bus, because what's more important is the salvation of your soul. And that has led us to this broken theology where justice has been underemphasized. And uh, theology from the margins, like the black church, the immigrant church, the Latino church, has been looked down upon and has been dismissed as liberation theology, as, as if right. that's that's foreign to the gospel. And, and you know, the whole CRT debate today, whenever Christians bring up justice and racial justice, uh, all of that can be traced back to the slaveholder theologians who are so deeply loved even today. Well, and, and, you know, we would argue within the misfits realm, we can go even further back and see it just within American history. You know, this is the Cold mm-hmm. War theology stuff. So, I mean, you know, you, you highlight the spiritual versus physical, but there's also within that same group that highlights so much about the spiritual versus physical, there also is a heavy physical over spiritual component to it. Because mm-hmm. it's very much about the here and now dominion evangelism mm. of in order for our souls to be saved, we must make every aspect of the world saved. Mm. You know, this this is part of why we're having this discussion. Besides the fact that schedules finally worked out to have this discussion now, <laughs> we are having this discussion in the middle of our, our you know, mini series talking about abusive theology. Because of the fact that this this is a part of all of the different abusive theologies that we've talked about. This is a part of Christian nationalism. This is a part of the stuff that Prudy talked about within the caste system. This is part of the issues that we talked about with, with Pastor Andy about patriarchy. This is a large part of what we talked about with Meg even regarding deconstruction and regarding losing, losing a church family. 
know, this is the heart of the Christian nationalist talk. You know, you look back throughout American history, and it's always been about this manifest destiny that God has given us, going all the way back to Winthrop and the Puritans, mm-hmm. who were also the the slaveholder theologians that were on the boats when the slaves were being brought over because it was just about their souls. And then it was about the prosperity of the city on a hill for everybody else. Now you also already brought up another one, which we'll hit here in a little bit because that one we probably need to spend a little bit more time on, but some of the other ones that we see a lot of time, you, you did mention, you know, there's all the old Testament law stuff is another big one that everybody harps on is the fact that they say that the Old Testament law condones slavery rather than condemns it. Mm. That's a heavy, heavy topic because there's a lot of verses in there. And we probably don't have time to tell you why you're wrong in this show. So instead, go to the show notes and click on the link to where Esau Macaulay will tell you why you're wrong which is the best explanation of that that I've ever seen. So that's why we're not dealing with that part right now is because Dr. Esau McCauley has already done it for us. Yeah. Now, some of the other ones that are kind of different, which I don't know if – I don't remember if you had said you had ever heard this one before until I had said somebody presented it to me. But one of the arguments was the property argument, specifically from George Whitfield. Uh, was this one that you had run across before, or is this a new one for you also? I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not very familiar with that one. So it's the argument that George Whitfield gave was that the slaves were providing the income needed to run his orphanages. Mm, and so yes. it was no different than having a mortgage on his property. That one there is a perfect example of where it's (laughs) spiritual versus physical for the marginalized. But then it's physical over spiritual for the majority that he was trying to serve. Mm. It should be pretty easy to see why that won't stand up biblically, but we'll get to that one eventually. Um, Another one that's used a lot is Paul specifically. Paul's letters to Ephesus and Paul's letter to Onesimus as well as a little bit of First Peter as well. We'll get to that. But the curse of Ham is the, is the main one that a lot of this hinges on. So, Joash, go ahead and explain for everybody what we are talking about when we say the curse of Ham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might be able to offer a better explanation to this, but uh, Ham was one of the sons of Noah. And, uh, you know, you have the scene after uh, Noah's Ark and, you know, after uh, they make it back uh, at post-flood where Ham commits some kind of sin and biblical scholars debate over uh, what what the sin, sin was. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just Ham. It was, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't remember the details. It's it's a, a little fuzzy. Uh, but, uh, Hopefully your I'll professor's t- not listening. Yeah, no. <laughs> Well, it's been so a while since I've read the Old Testament clearly. You're, uh, you're going <laughs> through, you're going through, you know, they they finally land. Yeah. Noah goes back to what he did before and plants a big vineyard, gets yeah. drunk, passes out naked. Ham, his, we, I don't remember if it's the oldest son or not, walks in, sees yeah. his father naked and goes out and tells his two brothers laughing and making fun of dad. That's what it was. Yep. And so yep. the other two sons 
go in backwards to respect their father and cover him up. Yep. And when Noah wakes up and gets and is a little groggy and hungover and finds out what had happened, yeah. He curses Canaan. Yeah. Not Ham. <laughs> exactly. Canaan is Ham's son. Mm. And he curses Canaan to be a slave to Jephthah. Specific or yeah, Jephthah specifically. Yeah. Or no, sorry, Shem specifically. Let's go with the right name. Shem specifically, <laughs> who Shem's descendants become the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And it sets up the rest of the Old Testament. But what was being taught was that Ham was the one that was cursed because obviously Ham is the one that sinned. And Ham's descendants settled Africa. But the reason that Ham was not cursed is because of the fact that Noah was basically doing eye for eye with his curse and the fact that Canaan was now not going to bring honor to his father. Yeah. It's a very fitting curse, and it's one that obviously was a prophecy given by God because of what comes next within the rest of the Old Testament. Right. But that's not whatever, that's never what was actually taught. And it was a limited curse. It wasn't an right. unlimited generational curse. It was only for, what, three, two or three generations or something? Well, and regardless of that, yeah. it was broken at the cross. There you go. Yep. So why do we still think that we need to then preach it to make other people no longer made in the image of God? I'll tell you why. Money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. think about it. If, you know, like, I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand how businesses work. Uh, and this is why slavery is, you know, uh, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry globally, right? It brings in more money than the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, uh, EPL, all of it combined. Uh, you know, and, and it's a very profitable industry because it benefits um, the slaveholders so much. There's so much financial gain because you can now sell products without any labor costs. Imagine the capital costs. Imagine the overhead that you save when you don't have to pay for labor and it's all free. And and that's that's what the American economy was built on. It was built on slavery. So, yeah, yeah, and that and that is part of why. You know, and this is where we're going to start getting some, you know, angry emails if we haven't already with stuff we've said. This is part of the reason why we are able to argue that capitalism is not biblical. Mm -hmm. Because part of the reason why slavery persisted within the United States was because of the fact that the South was rich off of it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which also led to its downfall post-slavery. Yeah. You know. These sort of things we can we can go and look at each individual thing and be able to identify what is actually at the root of all of this. And there are two things that are going to stand out for the majority of the time. One is a lack of the understanding of the Imago Dei, and the other is love of money. Those are the two things that we will find throughout the entire thing. But yet that's not how it's ever looked at or talked about yeah. at least within a lot of white conservative evangelicalism. And I yeah. use those terms very loosely because it's a broad brush 
but it's also somewhat specific because we don't normally see this sort of talk or theology coming out of any other field other than some of the super reformed camps that don't want to call themselves evangelical. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're clarifying right now that that's what we mean when we say that. So don't get offended if you're saying, I never heard this and never have taught this and don't believe any of it. Good, you shouldn't. But how do they actually go about reconciling all of this with Scripture? We already talked about the curse of Ham. That's all out of Genesis chapter 9. And it's all a complete misreading because they don't even identify the right person. So right there, we already have a problem with the way they're reconciling things. But we'll keep going. The other one, Ephesians 6, is a big one because Paul tells slaves to submit to their masters. Philemon, Paul sends the slave back to his master. The entire We already said the Old Testament is a little tricky when you start talking about this unless you actually understand what's going on, which again, Dr. Esau McCauley is the guy to go to for all of that. Um, Jamar Tisby does a lot also, but his is a little bit more academic. Esau McCauley lays it down very plain, very clear. You have some that will claim Matthew 28 also will be something where you you have, trying to think how to say it. There are people that will say Matthew 28 because it is all spiritual, it is spiritual over physical, is going to argue that the Great Commission condones slavery. Mm. Now, Joash, do you know how they get there? That's got to be some serious uh, exegetical gymnastics to get there. So break it down, please. So it's not even exegetical, which is part of the problem. (laughs) (laughs) It's eisegetical fully. But again, we're going back to the idea of dominion evangelism. This verse is used both within Christian nationalism, which we already debunked how that's not the case in the Christian nationalism episode. But there are people that believe that slavery was God's gift to Africa because it allowed them to be evangelized. Jeez. Because it took them away from their paganism into a Christian land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their claim is that they did so evangelistically because we are called to go to all nations. Yeah, I've heard people say the exact same thing about colonialism too. By the way, right, and, right, which yeah. is another another <laughs> branch of all of this as well. Yes, yeah, and, and well, I mean, it really is the same thing though, because the majority of colonialism was not about the prosperity of the people that were there. Yeah, it was about the prosperity of the people back home. Yep, yep. You know that that's part of again we're talking where this doesn't even necessarily this fits both the Imago Dei and the greed side of things because the people didn't matter it was what they had that mattered and we covered it up by saying you guys are pagans not a good look if you want to try to make that argument theologically just saying um, you know we also have things like in First Corinthians seven where Paul says to be content in all circumstances that you were called in so if you were called a slave you should remain a slave all of those sort of things which again. Paul doesn't actually say that. He just says that you should learn to be content. That's the message that he's given. Um, you'll love this one, Joash. Luke chapter 4, your favorite verse yeah. that actually says the opposite of this is also one that is used to condone slavery. Because, again, spiritual over physical. Mm. 
And then again, First Peter 2, which is another one where people don't know how to read it. And Peter says the same thing, slaves submit to your masters, not realizing what Peter's actually talking about. Yeah. So most of this is eisegesis that we have the problem with, not exegesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case for all of it, because there are people that will make actual theological arguments for these sort of things just not directly. And that is what Joash is going to be able to expertly break down for us when we come back from this break. We'll be right back. Today's a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, Podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your online reach. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online listed on all major platforms within minutes of finishing your first recording. We just switched to Buzzsprout for Season 2 and have immediately noticed the difference. With Buzzsprout, you get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into your websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and Buzzsprout and the Misfits want to help you get started. Contact us for a free consultation call, and then visit our affiliate link to get started with Buzzsprout. Using this link not only helps support the Misfits, but it also gets you a $20 Amazon gift card. The teams at Buzzsprout and Ministry Misfits are passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. To find out more, go to www.ministrymisfits.com backslash affiliates. Season 2 of the Ministry Misfits podcast and our awesome theme song are brought to you by Laird Creative Agency. In our social media world, the next connection is always one click or scroll away and your business has to be ready when they find you. That's why Laird Creative is always looking for ways to step your brand up. Whether you're looking to overhaul your brand one time with a new website or want to save money by outsourcing your graphic and media content, Laird Creative Agency is here to help. Laird Creative's mission is to take the difficulty out of the creative process. With Laird Creative, you'll find a dedicated team of artists ready to tackle any creative need that your business has, big or small. If you're looking for an easier way to share the vision of your organization through thoughtful branding and creative content, find them at LairdCreativeAgency.com to get started. Mention the Ministry Misfits podcast and get a free consultation call. Laird Creative, step your brand up. We're back. Hey everybody, we're back. Joe Ash is still here with me. We're fighting through. If you haven't noticed, both of our voices sound a little weird because we both are on opposite ends of colds at the moment. And so we, we unfortunately, the only time we were able to get together was when we were sick. So yeah. we are talking slaveholder theology. We started out by just listing off the different ways that people try to claim that these things are biblical. We weren't even able to do that really with a straight face because even while trying to explain what they were, we had to immediately correct it because it's that far off. 
Now, when we start talking about some of the other areas where this slaveholder theology stuff gets to be more popular in today's world, is the reality that there are multiple denominations, especially within evangelicalism, that still uphold slaveholder theologians mm-hmm. as the prime example of what a pastor should look like. Mm. And when you question it or say, hey, maybe this guy isn't the end all of, of everything, it's as if you have attacked Jesus himself. And their reasoning behind it, and it honestly goes hand in hand again with some of the stuff that we've seen in response to the episode we did last week with Meg relating to the stuff going on at Grace Community or Grace Community Church mm-hmm. is, well, look at their fruit. They're, they have had such an amazing ministry. There's no way there could be a problem. <laughs> and especially when we start talking about people from the past, the phrase that is used is men of their times. So I'm going to list off a few names that this especially is attached to. And these names are important because of how they are still looked at in today's world. And we'll explain why in a little bit. But Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Joseph Emerson Brown, James A. Broaddus, James Boyce. There's a lot more we could add on, but these five specifically have been in either the news or within major academic and theological debates just over the past two or three years. Now, Joe Ash, let's start out with the what is presentism? Because this is a key piece to what the arguments always are related to. Yeah, yeah. Presentism. I didn't even know what the word was. Much like I didn't know what CRT was before I was accused of it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Presentism was one of those things. So it's fascinating. So I started, you know, poking uh, holes in our neatly packed theological frameworks, asking questions like, you know, why is it that we're so obsessed with slaveholder theologians like Jonathan Edwards? I think that was my first tweet. It was just a question. And uh, I had senior Christian historians, like respected members of academia, uh, not just in the U.S., but also a New Testament scholar mm-hmm. in Australia, a couple of them, actually. Um, you know, uh, and it's sad, like, a couple of those guys I actually thought as future, I thought of as future PhD supervisors, potentially even. And uh, until they came at me for attacking their heroes. Um, so they threw the label at me of being a presentist, where it's basically, hey, you're judging people in the past by the standards of today. To which my response was, actually, no, I'm judging people in the past and the present under the standards that God has given us in scripture, under the standards of Jesus and his just redemptive kingdom. Uh, Because God is a moral absolute, right? Like God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And sin is sin. And sin has always been sin, whether it's today or yesterday. 
So why is it that we can talk about other sins and be okay with those individual sins um, being, you know, being not presentist, but the moment you talk about systemic sins or sins that affect marginalized communities like slavery and white supremacy and colonialism, all of a sudden it's, no, 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 you're being a presentist. You're applying the standards of the present to people in the past, and that's not fair. In reality, you know, that like what, what they're saying is moral relativism, if you think about it. It's actually they're they're essentially saying that morals can be relative to the time that we live in. Um, and you know, people today can have different moral standards than people uh, a few years ago, and that's okay because uh, because you know we're men of our times, and and that's uh, yeah. So I mean, the next time someone calls me woke, I'm just gonna say I'm a man of my times. How about that? <laughs> well, and that that's exactly what I think. Uh, I it may have been me, or it may have been um, one of our other friends. I have no problem being sarcastic to these kind of comments of the idea of the fact that it's okay for Edwards and Whitfield and Brown and Boyce and Broadus to be men of their times, right? But for a pastor today to say, hey, Black Lives Matter, yeah, that's not acceptable. That's mm. apostasy and heresy. Mm. That's that's Marxism. Oh, we can't have that. Right. But yet it's okay for other people to be men of their times because of the fact that look at their fruit. And so – there's a couple of problems beyond the fact, like you already said, we're judging people by the standard that God has set, not the yeah. standard of the time. Yeah. That's a biggie because we already said all we need to debunk this is Amago Dei. Mm-hmm. Once you have that, everything else is mute. But if we don't want to just go with that, if we want to say they're men of their times, they didn't know better which is another argument we hear with this. There's quite a lot of names that we can use to show otherwise. So just within historic Christianity, going back, going back a long, long, long way, way back, historic Christian abolitionists, St. Augustine was anti-slavery. Mm-hmm. Theodore of Mops, I can't even say it. St. Theodore <laughs> was an abolitionist. John Christendom was an abolitionist. St. Patrick was a freed slave yeah. that then went back to potentially be enslaved again to preach freedom for all, hmm. both from physical slavery and from spiritual slavery, both. Yeah. Acacius, Ambrose, Gregory, Pelagia, St. Thomas Aquinas, all of these guys have, and actually one of them is a girl, Pelagia is a girl, all of them have written historical documented abolitionist and theologically abolitionist things that were kept within church history. Mm -hmm. There's a long list and we have not even gotten to modern day slavery. So there's already a history of people getting this right theologically. Yeah. But it gets even more fun when we start to actually pinpoint in the specific time because people that want to claim presentism, (laughs) 
just within contemporaries of the people we mentioned. You have the Wesleys, both of them. So there's two right there. You have William Wilberforce, who is the one that a lot of people credit with basically taking down the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Charles Spurgeon, who most of the people that have come at you also would say this is like the greatest example ever. Yeah. Was a major, major abolitionist in his day. Mm-hmm. You've got Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. You've got Charles Finney. You got basically the entire Quakers as a whole. Yeah. You got Harriet Beecher Stowe, Theodore Weld, Benjamin Lay, John Woolman, Anthony Beniza. All of these guys that have written papers and published, some of which were former slaves themselves that went out and spoke on behalf of those that were still in slavery, mm-hmm. all calling for a theological argument against slavery. This then leads to a problem if they're saying that the men that were slaveholders were men of their times. If we just listed off 11 people by name specifically that were major players at the same time that were also against it, which one of them is actually a man of their time? Oof, that's good. Yeah, and if I could just add something, I really love that you also mentioned two names from the black church right because actually there's the black, three there three there three yeah there. yeah so people tend to not bring this up in conversations where we center uh you know white theologians but the black church was opposed to this they were the ones being enslaved black christians were opposed to this even black people who weren't saved were opposed to this because they were being trafficked into this so they were people of their times too And and this was actually what your argument was. Yeah. Was you were not calling for the canceling of Jonathan Edwards. Nah. You were calling for people to start reading contemporaries from the marginalized communities. Yeah. That had the same theological fruit. Yeah. And evangelistic fruit, but that were standing up for people that were in the margins. Yeah. 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 I I just want us to read better, right? And so my particular thing comes from actually being in a seminary class that semester uh, on Trinitarianism, where uh, we were made to read this book by um, uh, an English author, actually, who heavily cited Jonathan Edwards in his you know uh, view of the Trinity and actually went as far as saying as, Jonathan Edwards had such a beautiful view of the Trinity to which I, as a person of color in the class uh, wrote a critique paper and asked the question, well, if he owned slaves and his view of the Imago Dei was so warped, how good could his understanding of the Trinity really have been? And aren't there others of his time who were right on that issue, who potentially had a better understanding of the Trinity just because they didn't abuse uh, abuse fellow neighbors, uh, you know, in, in the name of uh, slavery or any other abuse like that. And uh, I found out that in a lot of majority white evangelical spaces, it's not okay to ask those questions, including Twitter, apparently, because if you ask questions like that, you're accused of being a presentist. All sorts of things. <laughs> all sorts of things. Absolutely. Well, and so 
we're going to we're going to dive deeper into that section of it here in a minute. Part of what before we actually even get to the next question that we've got on here to answer as we walk through this is the fact that this this also came up here about uh it was December I think where sinners in the hands of an angry god went viral again for some unknown reason it went viral again yeah and a lot of people were arguing the fact that why are we platforming this sermon when it was written and preached by a slaveholder and written on the back of a slavery seat mm-hmm. and many people are like well no look at the, the look at the theology in it look at the theology in it well, let's actually look at the theology in it because it actually does help us understand this men of their times argument mm-hmm. and even why it is resurfacing now in the midst of the racial reconciliation calls from one part of the church and the white Christian nationalism calls from the other side. Because the fir- one of the first lines in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God talks about God in a way that he holds man up over the fire like a spider to torture them into heaven because he abhors them. There is nowhere in scripture that talks about God hating his creation. Yeah. God hates the way that sin has affected his creation, but we have nowhere in scripture to back up any single piece of what was actually in that sermon. But to say that you're now accused of not caring about sin and not caring about hell. When what we're saying is the reality is that we see the actual fruit of a slaveholder theology just in the way that the gospel is presented in what is supposed to be an evangelistic sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Also, anytime, anytime our white brothers and sisters say, but just look at their theology. It was so good. You know what people like me and our black brothers and sisters hear? What we hear is but look past our humanity. Right. <laughs> so just look, just look at his theology, but you know, look past the humanity of all the black and brown bodies that were trampled in the process of writing this beautiful theology. And something else that's interesting about Edwards is, you know, uh, you know, and I even saw this in seminary with uh, certain historical theology professors just saying, Oh my goodness, my dream is to write as much as Edwards did. I don't know how much he found, how he found the time to do this. And then there are black scholars pointing out that actually the reason why he had so much time to do this was because he had people in slavery working for him, doing everything that he was supposed to do, that his family was supposed to do. And that freed his time up for all this beautiful works of theology, apparently. Right. And so when you're reading his theology, you're essentially consuming slave products of slave labor. Right. Well, and, and beyond that, even, you know, going into what you were talking about with the, the whole idea of, well, he had such a great understanding of the Trinity. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I don't remember who it was I was talking with about this, because it's probably a couple of different people is the reality of how the, the cessationist ideas, which this is not Edwards specifically. This is just people that are defending Edwards specifically. The, the way that cessationism is a requirement for patriarchy and for a white supremacist view of theology. Mm. Because some of the arguments we hear against Martin Luther King was based off of his education. Mm. 
some of the arguments we hear as to why we should read Edwards and Whitfield and ignore some of the African scholars that were doing the same work at the same time is because they were not educated enough to know theology. And why, one, that's false, go back and listen to the episode we did with Alan, Alan Marghese about actual history in India and Africa among Christianity. But beyond that, the other side of why this whole thing goes into the why the cessationists need this to work is because they are saying that the spirit could not have inspired the people over here. Mm. Because if prophecy has ceased, then you have to be educated in order to be able to deliver a theological message. Mm-hmm. But if prophecy is still active, if the spirit is still active and the spirit is still teaching and working, then it doesn't matter if this guy over here has no education. His theology may be a hundred times more accurate than the guy that has spent his entire life studying the books, but yet still cannot see the general, the, the easiest reality of the fact that God has made mankind in his image. Yeah. Yeah. And, if you think about how seeking justice is essentially a work of the Holy Spirit, right. it's a work of making all things new, it shouldn't surprise us that the folks who are the most opposed to justice are also opposed to the idea that the Holy Spirit is alive and moving today. Of course they're opposed to that because the Holy Spirit is opposed to them. The Holy Spirit pushes for justice and the renewal of all things. And it, you know, and you know, again, going even just going back to the creation story, we see this. Because when, when after God has created the heavens and the earth, and then suddenly we have darkness and chaos on, on the earth, who is it that God sends to make sure that chaos stays at bay? Mm. The Spirit is the one that's hovering over the waters and making sure everyone is in their proper place. So good. But if we take that out... And minimize it, or as Paul says in Thessalonians, as if we stifle it, it allows for us to do things that we otherwise would not be able to biblically back up. Yeah. So the question then, Joash, is what are we actually supposed to do about all of this? Yeah. Like what What is it that we are supposed to do with these big-name theologians that were active slaveholders and that either their sermons still go viral or they still have offerings named after them or they have seminaries and buildings with their names on them. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say what I've, what I've been saying or what I've been trying to say all along, which is we need to find better teachers, right? We need to find teachers who didn't abuse their neighbors by owning them as slaves um, there's so many people throughout the history of the church who lived upstanding, righteous lives, not perfect lives, but lives in which they were repentant of their sin. Uh, they were confessing their sin, accountable for it in community, and even going as far as to, um, you know, be, be publicly honest about their sins. Uh, but these were people who didn't abuse their neighbors. And and this is why this is another reason why I think it's important to talk about this topic is because one of the other pushbacks that I'd get is um, 
you know, don't you have sins too, Joash? Like slavery is just a sin. To which my response was, slavery isn't just a sin. It's abuse. It's 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 one of the worst forms of sin. It's uh, of course it's a sin, but it's it's beyond sin. It's it's evil. It's uh, it's intentional sin. It's you know it, it's uh, sin that destroys and ravages and and rapes and pillages uh, black and brown bodies. You know that's that's how evil slavery is. Uh, and, and if God is holy, slavery can have nothing to do with God. Slaveholder theologians can have nothing to do with God. And yeah, so that would be my first reaction. Find better teachers. Find teachers in the black church, the immigrant church, the Latino church, uh, the global church, South Asian church, Latin American church, African church. Uh, I've gotten two really great Bible commentaries over the last few days, the, uh, the African commentary and the South Asian Bible commentary and reading those hand in hand. It's just beautiful. It just allows me to experience Jesus in a fresh way, in a way that's um, on the margins, you know, in a way that our Dalit brothers and sisters like Prudy experience Jesus, in a way that our African, Latino, Latin American brothers and sisters experience Jesus, our Black church experiences uh, Jesus. Um, so that would be my first recommendation in terms well, of before you forward. get to the second yeah yeah even if you don't agree with anything we have said up to this point you think we're just you know straining at gnats or whatever you know or camels or whatever it is <laughs> which if you don't know what that was that was a reference to matthew and it was a really bad pun pun um where was i go oh that's where i was going but the other side of why what he just talked about is important. Yeah. Regardless of this conversation specifically on slavery, the conversation surrounding Imago Dei is why this is important. Mm. And the conversation around evangelism is why this is important. Because if we are actually reading voices that are outside of our own bubble, yeah, if we're talking to guys like Prudy, if we're talking to guys like Bradley out in South Africa, if we're talking to all of these different people and we're reading about theology, historic theology from people that do not look like us or talk like us or think like us because we are men of our times and they are men of theirs. It prevents us from getting into the isolationist, or the nationalist thinking of what the church is actually supposed to be and look like. Yeah. Because the church is global. That was the call that we were given. That was the message that was given in back all the way back to Daniel chapter two. We see the reality that the church is global and that Christ is Lord of all, not just one nation or one skin color or one way of thinking. And the only way to rid ourselves from that kind of thinking is to actually listen and learn from other people besides just the ones that look and think and talk and act like us. Now, what's your second point? Yeah, yeah. My second point's more, a bit more proactive than my first point. So I feel like one of the things I've been learning about Western evangelical theology is our propensity to tell people what not to do 
and who not to be. <laughs> Don't do this. Don't do that. Right. And and there's not so much of a discipleship in a positive direction where it's actually do this, replace a bad habit with a good habit. Right. So and I think this is where Isaiah 117 is one of my favorite verses. It's a key verse for us at IJM as well. Uh, it's actually on our logo if you look real close, but it says, uh, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. The best way for us to move forward as a church is to do these things. And if you look at Isaiah 1, it's a prophetic call through the prophet Isaiah from, the, from God uh, to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, to God's people saying, turn from your evil ways. You've oppressed your neighbor. Uh, your neighbor's blood is on your hand, slavery in specific. And, and then it goes on to Isaiah 117 where he says, but do these things, right? And I, I think... I think that the church has a unique opportunity here to move forward uh, and, and to do these things in a positive way. Um, and, and, and this would, this isn't just the right thing to do. It's also, it's also the most um, winsome thing to do in, in terms of our witness, right? It's, it's the thing that will speak the most to secular, postmodern, post-Christian culture around us, a uh, culture that's, yearning for justice and that thinks that the church is actually opposed to justice when we start seeking justice they'll look at us and they'll start to be like wait a second like what like jesus justice i've never thought of those things together and it's just a beautiful opportunity for the church to proclaim the gospel to fully allow the gospel to be good news to people who are poor to be good news to people who are captives and freedom uh, for people who are oppressed and you know that that right there, what we see in Isaiah one, you know, like you said, it's about doing rather than just being for them and being on their side. It's about actually doing it. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this on, on here a lot of the fact that, you know, this is what both testaments identify as what it means to follow the law. Because mm. in Micah six chapter, Micah six, God tells Israel I don't want your offerings anymore. You have over, you have, you've overstayed your welcome. The offerings aren't going to work anymore, but I will accept you doing these three things to seek justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with me, to lay down all of the pride, to actually go out and do what I have told you to do already. And then in Matthew 22, when Jesus asked, what the law, what the greatest commandments are. He tells them it's to love the Lord, your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And that all of the law and the prophets hinge on that. And they hinge on that because God already told them that that's what it hinges on in Micah chapter six, because it's not just about, Oh, this is a bad thing. Let's not talk about it anymore. Let's not do it anymore. It's a, this is a bad thing that the church has encouraged through bad theology. Yeah. And so we need to make sure we mark this as bad theology and let other people know that we agree this is bad theology. And part of why it's relevant is because this is not just pre presentism. It's because of the fact that slavery has not ended. 
And this is what going back and now you can actually talk as Joe Ash Thomas from IGM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slavery is still an active thing within the world today, even if we don't recognize it as such. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've had I've had the humbling honor of meeting so many people who've been rescued from modern day slavery and looking them in the eye, hearing their stories, hearing about the darkness of what they've endured. And to me, I can't go from that to reading slaveholder theologians because I can't fathom how anyone could love Jesus and be proactively abusing their neighbor by enslaving them, right? In fact, there's a story from our work in in Ghana where, where um, you know, we, we rescue boys off of this largest man-made lake on earth called Lake Volta. Uh, there are thousands of boys who are held there as slaves against their will. And uh, little boys aged from five to 12 to 15 and uh, we you know work with law enforcement locally to equip them to train them and enforcing the law to go out in boats and rescue these boys and then re- help restore them in aftercare homes and shelters and partnership with the local church but we had this pastors conference that we did for local church pastors around that lake and uh, this was a few years ago um, and we talked about God's God's heart for justice, God's heart against slavery. And uh, at the end of it, you know, we had a bit of a, um, a a prayer time and we just had a lot of pastors come forward. A lot of pastors who were at this pastor's conference held by IJM uh, by Lake Volta and Ghana come forward and say, you know what? No one's ever told us this before. No one's ever told us that god loves justice and he hates slavery oh and do you know what there are people at our church who have slaves out on the lake right now in fact some of the pastors themselves had little boys in slavery on the lake and they didn't see that contradicting with their christian faith because no one had ever pointed that to them before um I have, I have a guess as to probably why maybe some Western theology, maybe some slaveholder theology made its way down there in Ghana um, and, you know, through potential missionary activity. That's just uh, an assumption from what I've seen in other parts of the world. But, but you know, no one had told them that before. And, um, and they said, you know what? We've been convicted by the Holy Spirit. This is wrong. We're going to tell our communities this is wrong. And so they did a pastor's conference after that conference where they actually brought all the boys that their churches had, the church members and the pastors had uh, owned working for them uh, on these fishing boats in in, in in Lake Volta. And they surrendered these boys uh, to IJM and to local authorities in saying, here, here's, here's us learning to do right. Here's us seeking justice, defending the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow. And I just think that's a beautiful picture of what can happen. Like that's the story of the gospel right there, right? The gospel convicts us and it it compels us towards action. It compels us to turn our back on sin and to turn towards 
Jesus and the new society and the new just kingdom that he's establishing on earth as it is in heaven. And we have the opportunity to do that as the church uh, in partnership with organizations like IJM. So yeah, go to our website to learn more. Um, you know, you can ask for a speaker at your church. You can uh, do this thing called Freedom Sunday, uh, which we also do in Ghana and in places around the world. Uh, it's one Sunday a year where you teach on biblical justice as a church leader, and you invite your people to, uh, to essentially uh, learn more about God's heart for justice and to join the work of IJM and making all things new and seeking justice for people still in slavery today. And, uh, you know, uh, this... I'm, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because unless we repent of our slaveholder theology, we can't be true abolitionists um, in God's world that he's called us to live in today and to embody his presence in today. So yeah, thanks thanks for having me and uh, thanks for shining a light on this issue, both past and present. You know, and the part of what you are, are highlighting there yeah. towards the end is this idea of the fact that we do need to actually repent of it. Yeah. Because of the fact that not doing something about it is upholding it. Whether we are intentionally doing it or not, this is something that before we can actually be involved with any of these sort of organizations like you're talking about here or any of the work that's being done, we have to actually acknowledge the fact that not saying something is a problem. Yeah. And then after we have done that, it is actually sometimes just as easy as saying something. Yeah. You know, that is all that was needed in Malta was somebody actually saying something because it hadn't ever been heard before. Yeah. It was, it was literal ignorance of of scripture that led to this it wasn't necessarily a deliberate hate it wasn't necessarily a deliberate anything it was a misun misuse of scripture that led to this this is part of why you know we do the hashtag theology matters mm. because when we don't have the right theology and it's not christ-centered it's centered on something else. And when it's centered on something else, we already talked about, especially around slavery, money is normally where it's centered. Or hate is where it's centered. And neither of those things are fruits of the Spirit. Yeah. And neither of those things have died for us and saved us. So, Joe Ash, one more thing we probably need to clarify before we actually close out here, because I already know we're going to hear it. Are you saying that Jonathan Edwards was not a Christian? Yeah, I I don't like to speculate on things like that. I'm not God. I'm going to leave the judging to God, and I'm just going to be faithful to what God has called me to do. And so this is what God has called me to do. He's called me to call the church to repentance, to call us to seek justice, to uh, you know, to seek justice through positive examples of work of works of justice, like the work of IJM. Um, yeah, so I I will leave it to God to decide if Jonathan Edwards was saved or not. Now, I have close black friends who strongly believe that he was not a Christian because they can't understand, they can't fathom. And I think I think we need to listen to those voices as well 
and to decenter ourselves and center their voices because they're the descendants of this marginalized community. Uh, and, and, you know, we need to really respect what they have to say on it as well. But, uh, you know, I, personally, I can't, personally, I don't think anyone can, um, can follow Jesus, can, can love Jesus while not repenting of something like abuse at the same time. Right. So I'm not saying that applies specifically to Jonathan Edwards. I'll, I'd leave that to God, but, uh, but, but, you know, like I will say this, like, there are helpful things that I've seen in his theology as I've read his books, uh, but it's just heavily tainted for me. You know, I just can't, anytime I see him say something beautiful for me, it's also, my goodness, but you were living this life of abuse at the same time. And I would apply the same standard to Ravi Zacharias, mm -hmm. someone who looks like me, you know, who's who's not white. <laughs> you know? So the uh, I'm pretty equal opportunity with this stuff. It's not just reserved for white people from ages past. And, and that really is what, you know, the point of the question, which I'll clarify again, when he said, yeah, at the beginning, he was not saying, yeah, he's not a Christian. He was saying, yeah, of, of course, you're asking me this question. <laughs> yeah, but but part of what that is highlighting is the reality of what we have said multiple times on here. We are not attacking a person. Yeah. We're attacking an, ide an ideology. Mm -hmm. We are not God. We don't determine what gets people into heaven. Did Jonathan Edwards ever confess with his mouth, Jesus Lord, and believe in his heart that Christ raised him from the dead? Yes, we know that because we have heard him preach that. But did he actually, was he actually saved? That's up to God, not up to us. Yeah. Our job now is to acknowledge the fact that what was also said from the same mouth hurt a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that there were other voices telling him that it was hurting other people as well. Mm. And that is what it is that we are trying to highlight here. This is not a witch hunt or a, this guy is not saved. And so anybody that has followed in his theological footsteps is not either. Yeah. Because again, part of what we are saying here is that the spirit is the one that seeks out justice. And this is the job of the spirit and not us. Luckily it's not us. So yeah. if you want if you want to find out more about Joe Ash, um, you can go to our website first of all. Go to ministrymisfits.com, click on the guest tab, and you can find all of Joe Ash's information on his portal. Um, you can follow him at Joe Ash P. Thomas um, on Twitter, and I think it's that way on Instagram also, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not on Instagram anymore, but you can find me on Substack. Uh, oh, that's right. You're not on yeah. Instagram anymore because I tried to tag you in something the other day and couldn't. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on Substack, Jesus, Justice, and Joe Ash. Talk about Jesus and justice all the time. And, you know, just to go back to what you said, you said uh, it's the spirit that seeks justice. Yes, but it's also the spirit inviting us to seek justice with him right. Um, right. while leaving the judgment to Jesus, who will be the final judge when he comes back, right? So, yeah, we at IJM say that the work of justice is God's weight. It's our work, and it's to be that Jesus's way. And, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, and so thankful to be in partnership with your community of fellow justice seekers. Awesome. And, again, if you want to find out more about IGM, it's IGM.org if you're in the States, or IG, or I keep saying IGM, don't I? 
Let's try that again. If you want to find out more about IJM, International Justice Mission, you can do so at IJM.org or IJM.ca if you're up north and think that ham is bacon. Um, You can also, again, follow him at Joe Ashby Thomas. You can also follow IJM on Twitter as well and a bunch of other places. Um, With that being said, again, you can find all of his information in the guest portal on our website. On our website, also ministrymisfits.com. You can go to our store. Go There's a couple of different store options there. One of them is the Giving Bean Coffee. So if you want coffee, um, tea, K-cups, all of that kind of stuff that people that actually drink con- coffee know about, um, you can do so if you go to our website and go to the Giving Bean store through our website. Um, a percentage of what you buy there is going to come back to Misfits. Um, there's also the Mis- Misfits merch, all the mugs, all the T-shirts, all that, as well as the Tikva store, where all the profit from that is going back to Tikva. Um, doing some justice work here in the city of Canton with helping some of the at-risk teens and kids in our neighborhood. Um, also, if you want to support us, you can do that at patreon.com. Patreon.com backslash Mr. Misfits. We did just add the $3 level. And what that $3 level is, is it will get you access to other live events like we did with Meg Wise um, a couple of weeks ago. It would get you a backstage pass to that live stream to where you'd be able to ask her questions directly um, rather than having to wait for Facebook to load. Um, or um, you can obviously still watch it live anyway, which we're thankful you do. But the other thing it gives you with this $3 level is it gives you access to the exclusive Bible studies that we are going to start doing occasionally throughout the year. The first one starting here in a couple weeks in March on the book of Galatians, um, dealing with honestly some of the stuff we just talked about, a lot of the stuff we just talked about in terms of um, being free, being free from slavery, what God actually thinks about these sort of things, what God thinks about our identity as people and what it means to follow him and what it means to repent of some bad theology that we've had. So if you're interested in that, patreon.com backslash mystery misfits. Again, the $3 level um, gets you access to the Bible studies. We don't know yet if we're going to be able to do a live study or if they'll be pre-recorded with a chat room for discussion later. Um, but either way, if you go to patreon.com backslash Mr. Misfits and sign up at any level, you'll get all the information and access for that later on. So yeah, Joe Ash, thanks for coming on for making time. Um, well, I'm sure you'll be back at some point and, uh, don't, uh, and hopefully maybe we'll have one that's not so controversial. Oh, that does remind me. There's one other thing that you need to talk about here. You uh, <laughs> you thought I was about to forget, and uh, I almost did since Brandon wasn't here. We, we so, were doing so great. So great. Yeah. So um, those of you that follow Joe Ash already saw a little teaser of this. But Joe Ash is, uh, has been leading a double life here because uh, Joe Ash moonlighted as a, uh, a boy band uh, lead frontman for a number of years while he was in India. You want to share anything about that, Joe Ash? Yeah, I mean, not really, but you know, since you brought it up, uh, we, I was part of a band called 70 times seven, uh, super biblical Christian boy band name. Right. Uh, yeah, we were invited across, 
uh, this you know, the city of Mumbai that I lived in uh, to lead worship at, at at different you know youth events and that kind of thing and uh, and yeah it was a lot of fun I mean I I feel like I may have missed out on my calling a little bit because a couple of my bandmates are now some of India's biggest worship leaders um, like you could literally find them on Spotify and YouTube and that kind of thing and and they're doing really well like they're crushing it and they weren't that good back then like i always <laughs> felt like i was a little better so i've definitely missed a calling yeah well we'll let people judge for themselves because uh i bribed joe ash into giving me the link and so if you want to see video of joe ash as a uh as a uh boy band front man just make sure you go to the show notes and and click <laughs> on the link there as well so um joe oh, ash thanks for coming on um, we'll see if you even are willing to talk to me after this releases now, and uh, we will see you all next week. The Ministry Misfits podcast is a production of Ministry Misfit Media in association with Overwhelming Victory. Dr. Greg Linville and Andrew Fouts are our executive producers, and Brandon Simmons is associate producer. The Ministry Misfits theme song is written and produced by J.D. Laird and Laird Creative Agency. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ministrymisfitmedia at gmail.com or by following at ministrymisfit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also visit our website at www.ministrymisfits.com or through bio.link backslash ministrymisfits. If you would like to support Ministry Misfits, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com backslash ministry misfits.